Afternoon friends, great to see you here at the EU public meeting. It's always good to meet together around God's word and hear what he has to say to us in the middle or now towards the end of our week here at uni. A few years ago now, around the time of the Sydney Olympics, the marketeers of Foster's Beer decided to cash in on the nationalistic fervour of the time with a new ad campaign timed to go with the Olympics. It was titled, I Believe. And along with the ad, there were all sorts of iconic Australian images, as you would expect. But the words that went with the ad formed a creed, a sort of statement of what you and I are meant to believe as Australians. This is the way it goes. I don't have a kangaroo for a pet. I don't wrestle with crocodiles. And I don't wear a cork hat. I fight wars, but never start wars. I would rather make peace. I can wear my country's flag with pride. I am a rock. I am the ocean. I am the island continent. My brothers are the Smiths, the Wilsons, the Santarellis, the Dacostis, the Wongs and the Jangamaras. I play football without a helmet. I like like beetroot on my hamburger. I ride in the front seat of a taxi. I believe it's a prawn and not a shrimp. And at this point the voice goes up, right? I believe the world is round and down under is on top. I believe Australia is the best address on earth and Australians brew the best beer on earth. Mmm. Well, possibly we brew the best beer on earth, but I wonder how many would think it was Foster's. <laughs> and if you're studying here in Sydney from overseas, you might say, well, is that really what Australians are like? Is that what Australians believe? Does that identify Australians? Well, a delightful piece of irony about this ad is that on the ad is such a go Australia type of ad. Do you know where they got the ad from? They stole it from New Zealand. (laughs) It was written for New Zealand. There you go. We plagiarise our expression of Aussie nationalistic pride from the Kiwis. Something's not right there. The point I want to make is this. If you actually believe that that ad captures what all Australians believe, you'd be mistaken. For instance, I'm going to stick my neck out on a bit of a limb here, or a chopping block. That is, hand up if you don't like beetroot. See? I I confess, if you put beetroot on my hamburger, you've ruined a perfectly good meal. I can't stand beetroot on my... If you believe that 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 is true though, that Australians all like... You would just be, you know, believing the wrong thing and that could lead to absolutely catastrophic consequences. You could put beetroot on my hamburger. The point is a simple one. You can believe the wrong thing sometimes and it will lead to catastrophic consequences. Not necessarily beetroot on a hamburger. But what happens if you believe the wrong thing about Jesus of Nazareth? What we're going to see in the passage we're going to look at from John's Gospel today is if you believe the wrong thing about Jesus of Nazareth, it leads to catastrophic consequences. 
It matters what you believe about him. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to turn up to John chapter 3. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 2 and there's also an outline there. You might like to take a few notes just to help you stay focused. Over these last two weeks, we've started our journey through John's Gospel. It's John the Apostle's eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection. And we saw last week that John has a very specific purpose in mind as he writes this for you and me. That is in chapter 20, verse 31, 30 and 31, we read this. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John the writer, John the eyewitness, is engaging in an act of persuasion. He's seeking at Jesus' command to persuade you and I and everyone who reads his book that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the promised anointed one, the one who was chosen by God to bring in God's kingdom, God's rule, bring in the great new age we saw last week, the new age of blessing, of fulfilment of all of God's promises. And how's John trying to persuade you to believe that? He's setting forth in his book the different signs that Jesus did, the signs that are divine confirmation, confirmation from God about Jesus' identity so that you can read them and that you too can believe that Jesus is the Christ. John puts forth these signs so that you might believe. And that's what we're going to talk about today, believing in Jesus. Because as we read John's account and we pick it up here in chapter 2, we're going to learn that actually believing in Jesus is a bit more complicated than just, just believe in him. The question is, who do you really believe he is? Not just that you believe something about him, believe that he's someone, even someone important. The question is, who do you really think he is? So let's start by looking at the end of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. If you've been reading along with us, you'll know that Jesus is in Jerusalem and this is John's summary account of what happened when Jesus was there in the capital city. John writes, Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. That sounds good, doesn't it? We've just been reminded from chapter 20 that you know you see the signs that Jesus does and you believe in his name. That's a great thing. We expect good things at this point. But then read what John says in verse 24 and 25. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. There's a problem. Something's up. There's a deliberate play on words there. It's as though John is actually writing, Jesus himself was not believing in them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Or they trusted in him, but he wouldn't trust himself to them. He wouldn't entrust himself to them. There's no two-way street. Jesus holds back. Now, that's not what, meant, that's not what is meant to happen. If you look a bit later on, you can look it up later, in John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus is talking about love. And I think in John's Gospel, to love Jesus is part and parcel of believing in him. And listen to what we read there in John 14, verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. 
My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's the way it's meant to be. You love Jesus and the father and the son, they come and make their home with you. They entrust themselves to you. They give themselves and come to you. But what happens here in chapter 2? They believe in Jesus' name and Jesus holds back. He won't entrust himself to them. Something's wrong here. But they've believed in his name. There's something wrong with their belief. What is it? What's up? Well, the problem's going to become clear as we move into chapter 3. This is one of those times in the Bible where where they've put the chapter division is very unhelpful because we read through and get to the end of chapter 2 and think, right, well, we've finished that, now let's go to chapter 3, something new. Actually, they're part and parcel of the same thing. Chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, those verses we read, lead straight on into this episode where Jesus meets this guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you like, is a case in point, an example of what John has just been telling us at the end of chapter 2. So let's have a look at when Jesus meets Nicodemus. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus has seen the signs, just like we saw in chapter 2, verse 23, and he's come to some sort of belief about Jesus. Verse 2, we know, he says, we know, speaking for those who've seen the signs, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, because look at the signs you're doing. But see, because we've been reading from chapter 1, verse 1 of John's Gospel, we know straight away what Nicodemus has said about Jesus is woefully inadequate. It's woefully inadequate. See, who do we know Jesus to be if we've been reading from the beginning of John's account? We know that he is the eternal word who was God, who was with God, who became flesh. Is he just a teacher from God? We know that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that he is the Christ, the chosen one of God who will bring in God's whole new rule, bring in the new age of fulfilment. We know that he is the King of Israel. He's just a teacher, come from God. No, what Nicodemus has said is woefully inadequate. What he believes about Jesus isn't the right thing. It's coming up to that time where maybe you've got a hand in your first essay. So there you are up at the library trying to withdraw a book for the first time ever. I mean, normally you just write an essay out of your head, but you decide you'd actually go and try and find something to use this time. You go up to the library, you've never been there before, and you sort of you find a book that looks semi-useful, it'll do anyway, and you go down to try and check it out. And you've got a card and you've got these books and you're fumbling around, you, you don't know what you're doing. And suddenly there's a bit of a queue lining up behind you and, and you're sort of getting a bit flustered. But then fortunately a kindly older gentleman comes along and just says, oh, look, do you, do you need a bit of help here? You know, oh, yes, please. So he just shows you what you do and how you check out books and, oh, great, you've now got books and great sigh of relief. Well, that's done. I now I know how to do that. And just to sort of be polite to the gentleman who's helped you, say, oh, you, you help out here in the library, do you? And he says, um, well, n- no, I, my name's Gavin Brown. I'm the Vice-Chancellor of the University. <laughs> All right, right. 
See, sometimes we just misunderstand who someone really is. You know, sure, he did help in the library. Yep, we got that right. He was a great helper. But if you said, yes, Gavin Brown, I've met him, he's the library helper. Helps you check out books. That would be a woefully inadequate belief, wouldn't it? And could lead you right up the garden path. Well, it's similarly for Nicodemus. It is a woefully inadequate stab in the dark to say Jesus is a teacher come from God. He may believe in Jesus' name, but he doesn't really grasp who Jesus is. And as we see, there's going to be many problems, therefore, coming from this false belief, an inadequate belief. So Jesus then identifies Nicodemus's problem. First of all, he says he needs to be born from above. Remember, we've already been told in verse 25 that Jesus knows what is in a person. And here's a person standing right in front of him. Jesus knows what is really going on for Nicodemus. And he doesn't start by saying, look, Nicodemus, the problem is you just haven't really believed who I am. He actually starts somewhere else. He starts by looking at the consequences of Nicodemus's inadequate belief. Because Nicodemus's inadequate belief means that he misses out on something that is absolutely essential. That's going to leave him way short of where he would want to be. Look at verse 3, how Jesus replies to Nicodemus. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born from above. Now, I'm reading from the New International Version today and that mucks up the order of the sentence. The ESV, which I looked up, gets it a bit better. It says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the very first thing that Jesus says is, unless you are born from above. That's the first thing that Jesus identifies as the thing that Nicodemus lacks, birth from above. Now, your Bible might actually have born again instead of birth from above. might have birth from above as a footnote. That's because the word that Jesus uses is ambiguous. It it means literally both things. Sometimes it means from above and sometimes it just means again. So what was Jesus saying? You need to be born from above or born again? Well, Nicodemus in verse 4 understands Jesus is saying you have to be born again because he says, well, that makes no sense because I can't enter into my mother's womb and be born again. That doesn't really make a lot of sense, Jesus. Great teacher you are from God. (laughs) But then you notice what Jesus then does in verse 5. He clarifies what he's not talking about being born again so much as being born from above. Look what he says in verse 5. Jesus answers, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless... He is born of water and the Spirit. Well, what's Jesus saying here? Well, a couple of things to note. The first thing is, what does it mean to be born of water and Spirit? Some people say that this is a place where Jesus is talking about being baptised. That what you need, Nicodemus, is to be baptised, born of water and Spirit. I don't think that's actually what Jesus is talking about. See, how are we going to understand what Jesus means here? Well, remember in John chapter 5, which I mentioned last week, Jesus tells us that all of the Old Testament scriptures testify to him. That is, all of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, they all testify, point to Jesus. So if you want to understand Jesus and what he's saying, the first place to look really is the Old Testament, the Christian Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. 
And I think there's a, there's a couple of passages that lie behind what Jesus is saying here about you have to be born from above, born of water and spirit. So we're going to turn up now to Ezekiel chapter 36. If you've got an Old Testament there, turn up with me to Ezekiel 36. We're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this particular passage because I think it's one of those passages that helpfully explain for us what Jesus is talking about. Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 28. The Lord is speaking here, Lord God, through his prophet Ezekiel. This is a really wonderful passage, one of those key passages in the Christian Old Testament that points forward to the great future that God has in store. Let's have a look at what the Lord God says. Verse 24 of Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations, says the Lord God. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Remember, we're looking for references to water and spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. There's a couple of different things to note here from this passage. First of all, what's the water and the spirit about? Well, the water here symbolises cleansing from sin. And also a new spirit is put within God's people here. And that spirit is given through the Lord's spirit. So I think what this passage is describing is a radical Twofold transformation. First of all, there's a transformation of our standing with God. That is, God cleanses us from our sin. He wipes away our sins. It's as though he washes it away with, with pure water. That changes the way you stand before the Lord because your sins have been dealt with. That's the first radical transformation that God is promising. But the second transformation is something that happens inwardly that God is going to put a new spirit in us and he's going to give it through his spirit. He's going to do something in me to my heart. So what that picture is, it's a, a comprehensive, divine dealing with sin. He's dealing with my sin that already stands between me and the Lord. He's going to wash that away and then he's going to attack the very problem of my sin, my sinful heart, by giving me a new heart. So he's going to comprehensively deal with this problem of sin, both objectively, the sins I have committed, and subjectively, within me, by giving me a new heart. That is what it means to be born from above, to have that radical transformation worked in your life. That is what Nicodemus needed, according to Jesus. Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and of spirit. And notice it is only the work of God. Notice there in that passage in Ezekiel 36, just notice all the number of times I will is said. For I will, says the Lord, take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove you over and over and over again. Who does this work? Nicodemus, the Lord. 
Only the Lord can work this comprehensive, radical, twofold transformation in your life. The new birth comes from above, from God. And I think that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus back in John 3 in verses 6 to 8, where he says to Nicodemus, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but it's the spirit that gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. That is, Nicodemus, you can't control this new birth. You can't manufacture it. You can't decide who gets born again. It is from the Lord. The third thing to note about that passage in Ezekiel 36 is that it is a mark of God's kingdom, this new birth from above. In Ezekiel 36, notice there the context. It's about God bringing his people back from exile. It's the fulfilment of all of God's great and wonderful promises to establish his rule over his people. So if you want to summarise that, it's going to be God's people in God's place, in God's presence, with his protection and with his abundant provision. That's the picture of the kingdom of God. And this promise in Ezekiel 36, that is what he is talking about. Here comes the kingdom of God. I'll draw you back from the nations and establish my reign, my rule over my people. The final thing to note here about this passage is that Jesus really then isn't saying anything new to Nicodemus, is he? When he says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, look, you must be born from above if you're to see the kingdom of God. Is that news? No, because there was back there in Ezekiel 36 and you can find similar passages in Jeremiah and Isaiah. He's not telling Nicodemus something new. He's just repeating what's already there in the scriptures. And Nicodemus of all people should have known that, shouldn't he? Because after all, he was the teacher of Israel in verse 10. And so Jesus says to him in verse 7, you shouldn't be surprised. And I'm saying you have to be born from above. For goodness sake, Nicodemus, you know the scriptures, don't you? It's there. It's not news. But somehow Nicodemus had missed it. This interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus is quite famous. Understandably, it brings up a lot of key things of what it means to believe in Jesus, to have life in his name, to be born from above. And so different people at different ages in Christian history have tried to communicate the truths of this passage to people through pictures. I mean, go back particularly to before people were literate, or before many people were literate, and um, you couldn't just open your Bible and read the story here as we are today. It would have to be communicated to you in other ways, and so you get wonderful stained glass windows in churches of Jesus and Nicodemus. And if you were going to draw a wonderful you know, picture of Jesus and Nicodemus, that might be a bit of a stretch for some of us, but if you were going to try, you would pour over the passage and try and glean the truths from the passage and then try to capture it in your artwork, wouldn't you? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and show you just a few uh, pictures of Nicodemus and Jesus. Here's a stained glass picture of Jesus in the red with Nicodemus. And can you see what is at the base of Nicodemus' feet? See what's at the bottom there? It looks like a book and some scrolls. Nicodemus, after all, was a teacher of Israel. Do you notice how they're closed 
He didn't know what was in them, did he? You shouldn't be surprised, Nicodemus, that I would have to say you need to be born again. Somehow Nicodemus had missed. It's like he hadn't read what was actually there. Here's another one. There's Nicodemus. Notice what is underneath Nicodemus's foot. It's a big book. I presume meant to be the Jewish scriptures. He's got his foot on it, keeping it shut. It's like he's willfully refused to accept what God had told him. Notice something else. Notice how Nicodemus is looking down. Remember that Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 3, he said, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus could be saying there, you won't see it in terms of your experience. You can't be part of it because that's what he goes on to say in verse 5. You won't enter the kingdom of God. But maybe he's also saying, Nicodemus, you know what? You've misunderstood who I am. You think I'm just a teacher. You can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see the king in God's kingdom. That is me because you haven't been born again. And so they try to capture in the paintings and the pictures that Jesus, Nicodemus just doesn't see Jesus. He looks down. He's not even looking at him as though he can't recognise the very person in front of his face. Here's another one of Jesus and Nicodemus. And you'll notice again, Nicodemus again, not seeing Jesus, looking down. So I just want to say at this point, what sort of response do we make to just this part of John chapter 3? How are you and I going to respond to what we've already learnt from the Lord today through his word? That we must be born from above if we're to enter the kingdom of God. That we need this transformation of water and of spirit to deal with our problem of sin. How do we respond to that? I think two responses. First of all, if you are a Christian person, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus, if you're a follower of him, then I think we should be full of Thanks and gratitude because that birth, that transformation in our life, that has come only from the Lord. No glory for that goes to you or me for putting our faith in the Lord Jesus. That new birth comes solely from the Lord, the Lord who says, I will. So I think the first thing is we should be full of thanks and praise, thanks and gratitude as we remember that it is the Lord who has worked this in our life. Second response I think we need to make is remember, if this new birth really does come solely from above, then how are people going to get this this new birth that is essential if they're to be part of God's kingdom? Part of that great future where we will be God's people in his place, in his presence, with his protection, with his abundant provision. How will people ever have that new birth? Only if he works it in them, right? So doesn't that move us to prayer? Doesn't that move us just to pray for those who are not yet born from above so that they might enter the kingdom of God? Two thoughts at this point then. First of all, gratitude and thanks. But also prayer. Prayer for the world. Prayer for those who are lost. Well, Jesus then, in verse 11, starts to focus 
on the issue of Nicodemus's belief. He's talked about the consequences of Nicodemus failing to really believe that he, he won't be born again, that um, he can't enter the kingdom of God. And now he addresses Nicodemus's belief problem explicitly in verses 11 to 21. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to move us through verses 11 through to 21, just sort of take a couple of verses of time, trying to just sort of give you a, a heading or an indication of what those verses are about and how they fit together into what all of Jesus is saying at this part. So you might like to jot a few thoughts down as we go. First of all, we have the problem, Nicodemus's problem, identified. That's in verses 11 to 13. The problem identified. And what's the problem? That they haven't accepted Jesus' testimony. So look there at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know. That is, remember Nicodemus came saying, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. Well, Jesus now replies, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testified what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. I think he's talking about the new birth that happens now. It's an earthly thing that it happens now on this earth. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? That is, what it will be like when we finally do enter the kingdom of God. The basic problem is that they haven't accepted Jesus' testimony. They say he's a great teacher, but they don't actually believe what he says. His word has no place in their life, as he will say later on in the book. And then Jesus gives them a good reason for listening to him. They should listen to him. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That is, Jesus is in a completely unique position to speak with authority about this new birth from above. He's in a unique position as the one come from heaven who can speak about these heavenly and earthly realities. But they won't accept what he says. What use is it to say, Jesus, you're a great teacher who comes from God, but then actually not accept what he says? If Jesus thinks he is the Christ, he says he's the Christ, if he says that we should be followers of him, but you reject that, well then have you really believed that Jesus is who he says he is? This is Nicodemus' problem. Then what John goes on and Jesus goes on to say, verses 14 to 18, is that he reinforces that belief is the key to eternal life. That is, how do you get born from above? If it's all the work of God, how, how, from our side, how do we get born again? Well, Jesus' answer is you need to believe in him. Believe that he is the one who's come from God. Verses 14 to 15, let's see what Jesus says there then. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Lifted up in John's Gospel often is a way Jesus talks about what's going to happen to him at death and beyond. That is, he will be lifted up onto the cross, but when he's lifted up onto the cross, that will also be the way that he's going to be lifted up back to glory at the Father's side. It's all sort of fused together in John's account of Jesus' ministry. That the Son of Man, Jesus himself, must be lifted up, that is, lifted back up in death, lifted up in exalted to the Father's right hand when his supreme magnificence, his glory, will become uh, apparent. But the background here, what's this lifted up to a snake, like a snake, the bronze snake? That background is Numbers chapter 21. Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. 
you want to look it up briefly. Numbers chapter 21. Going back in the history of God's people, here are God's people coming out of slavery in Egypt under the Lord's hand in the leadership of Moses. They're wandering through the the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. Now, what happens along the way? Well, this is one of the things that happens along the way. We're going to read Numbers chapter 21. I'll just read from verse 4. It says, They, that is God's people, the Israelites, travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. So, some happy campers. It's always a bit dangerous to be a not happy camper when the Lord has provided for you. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. There's a reality check. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. That's right. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord is gracious, as is his way. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying eternal life, not just life from a a fatal snake bite, but eternal life, being born again, is found by turning to the Son of Man, the one who's going to be lifted up. That is how we get born from above by turning to the lifted up Son of Man and believing Him, that is accepting His testimony, following and remaining with Him, as we saw last week. So that's the answer to Nicodemus' question. How can these things happen? How does it all work? And then we go on in verses 16 to 17 to get a little insight into, I guess in some ways the curtain is pulled, pulled aside and you can see into the motivation of God in providing this way to be born from above. That is, verses 16 and 17 give us the divine motivation, the sacrificial love of God for the world in opposition to him. Verse 16, you probably know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Uh, It was, on reflection, a very silly thing to do and so I will counsel you against doing it. Uh, When and if you get engaged and at your engagement party, don't entrust your camera to an art student. (laughs) Now, maybe I'm overgeneralising. You can point that out later. But yes, when um, my wife and I were getting engaged... We had an engagement party and we entrusted our camera, the only camera that was going to be used at the party to take photos, our lasting mementos 
of the occasion to an art student. Not because the camera wasn't kept safe, that's not why it was a silly thing to do, it was because I had no control over the photos that he took. Every single photo, I'm not exaggerating, every single photo he took came back with a sign held up in it that said, John 3.16. Just a sign like this. So there's some great photos of people arriving at our party with John 3.16 held up in front of their faces. <laughs> there's people enjoying pleasant conversation and over their heads is John 3.16. There's photos of inanimate objects with John 3.16 next to them. Now, don't get me wrong, John 3.16 is a marvellous verse of the Bible. A great thing to be reminded of. Of course, maybe you've seen John 3.16 being held up you know, at sporting events. I can remember watching the Winter Olympics years ago and there was a guy who seemed to always be there at the Winter Olympics at the luge or the bobsled holding up John 3.16 as they whizzed past. I presume it was for us rather than the bobsledders because <laughs> they wouldn't see it very well. Why do people, why do Christians... Hold up John 3.16 all the time. Why not hold up Zephaniah 1.17? Ah, yeah, I know you're thinking, what's Zephaniah 1.17? I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you right now. Here it is. Zephaniah 1.17, I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Why not hold up Zephaniah 1.17? It's a doozy. (laughs) Why focus on John 3.16? Well, a friend of mine who is a a great and experienced preacher and a wise man told me you should never ever preach on verses like John 3.16 because they're so well known, they're so great, they're so loved that you'll never do it justice, you'll just sound lame. Oh well, happily and humbly I embrace my lameness, here I go. (laughs) Why is there so much focus on this verse of the Bible? I think it's just because it's one of those wonderful verses that pull together some great Christian truths. The sacrificial love of God for this world, a world that's running away from him, that's in rebellion against him, that he sends his one-of-a-kind son into the world so that by believing in him we actually may escape what we deserve, we might escape perishing and instead get what we do not deserve, eternal life. It's a wonderful verse, full of wonder. It's full of possibilities for our rebellious world. It's a verse that is love-soaked. It has just that love-soaked divine invitation. And it's such a well-known verse that you would think it's probably the heart of this passage, but actually it's not. This passage really, as I've tried to show from from the end of chapter 2 right through to chapter 3 verse 21, is all really about belief. Who do you believe Jesus is? And this passage is not really about the love of God for the world. So whilst this verse isn't maybe at the heart of the theme of the passage, it does actually take you, though, to the heart of God himself. There is the great divine motivating love that sent his son into the world that we might believe and have life in his name. And so in verse 18 we return to that big theme of belief and it's really made very clear that belief is the issue. Whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one-of-a-kind Son. Have you ever been to the National Gallery in Canberra 
or, or the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Any of you have been to a famous gallery, you know, actually seen quality artworks. I remember going to the National Gallery as a kid, being dragged along by my parents. I saw amazing things in that place. I saw a canvas, huge, that was pure white, and next to it was one that was pure black. I can remember it. I was maybe 11 years old. I still do not know what it means. <laughs> and I saw Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles. Then, and maybe still now, the pride of the National Gallery, the pride of our National Art Collection. And I was greatly encouraged. Because I thought, wow, my artworks can get shown in the National Gallery. I can do that. <laughs> but you know, saying that sort of thing, having that sort of attitude... Does that tell you something really about Jackson Pollock's Blue Poles? An internationally acclaimed, recognised, great work of art? Or does it actually tell you something about me? That frankly, I'm an ignorant fool when it comes to art. See, sometimes when you cast judgement on something, you're not actually saying something about it. You actually end up revealing something about yourself. And what we learn here is that whoever does not believe in the Son of Man stands condemned already. Because they haven't believed. If you're not going to believe in the Son of Man, then you are revealing that you are already on the wrong side of God. It says something about you. It reveals your heart. Well, we come then to the last verses of the passage, verses 19 to 21. And it's really the summary. And it's introduced with these words. This is the verdict. Here's the judgment on the whole issue of belief. This is why some people believe and some people don't. Why some people accept Jesus' testimony and why some people don't. What we read there is that the light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Why don't they accept Jesus' testimony? This is a harsh and difficult truth, friends. But basically these verses say there's two types of people in the world. There are those people who hate the light. That is, they hate the Lord Jesus. They refuse to come to him. And the reason they won't come to him is because their deeds are evil. That is, when you come into the light, it exposes you. We all look better in the dark, don't we? But when you come to the light, the truth is revealed. And when we come to Jesus, our wickedness, the fact that we fall short, it is all revealed. And so some people refuse to come to the light. That is why they will not accept Jesus' testimony. That is why they will not believe. It is more comfortable to stay in the dark. But then there are also the second group of people who do come into the light, verse 21. These are those who do accept Jesus and therefore follow him and remain in his teaching and instruction. They literally live by the truth, we're told. But... The crucial thing is not that they're the good people. No, because what they've done has been done through God. That is, they have been born from above. God has worked a change in them, cleansed them by water and his spirit. There are two groups of people. Those who are born from above and believe in the Lord Jesus and follow and remain with him and there are those who hate the light because their deeds are evil. Which group do you reckon Nicodemus was in? I don't know if you noticed there in verse 1 of the, of the passage, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He came to Jesus at night. He came to the one who is the light of the world at night. 
was Nicodemus going to stay in the dark? He's come to Jesus. He's heard what Jesus had to say. Nicodemus, you have to be born from above. You need to accept my testimony. You need to believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God. Is he going to accept that? Or is he going to stay in the dark? And at the end of John chapter 3, it's open. We don't know. And if you chase through John's Gospel, a couple of times Nicodemus will appear and there's hints that maybe, maybe, he actually did start to believe. He actually came on board, believed that Jesus wasn't just a good teacher, but actually believed that he was the Son of God, the Christ. But it's only hints. And I think in some ways it's left open because the question then is driven straight back at you and me, who do you believe that Jesus is? Just a good teacher? Finished with a story a couple of years ago at O Week here at Sydney Uni. I met a guy and I said, Oh, look, do you know much about Jesus? No, I don't. Would you like to find out something about Jesus? He said, Yeah, I would. And I was sort of, Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, let's meet up. And so we started meeting each week in first semester, much this time of year. And we started reading through Mark's account of Jesus' life, Mark's gospel. A couple of weeks in, he turns up one day and says, You know what? I read that chapter we'd set and I was so excited that I went and read the whole rest of the book. I said, wow, that's great. He said, and you know what? I think it's all true. I said, that's fantastic. I said, so you want to become a follower of Jesus? You want to repent of your old ways, put your old ways behind you and start living Jesus' way? He he looked at me. No, I don't want to do that. He believed it was all true. But he wouldn't accept Jesus' word. Did he really believe in Jesus? No. Did Nicodemus? We don't know. The question really is, do we?